Hey everyone, this is your host, Jake Hirschman. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast. We are excited to bring you Suja Organic as our sponsor for today's episode. If you go to shop.sujajuice.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll be able to receive 15% off their packages. Excited to have Suja on board and thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, here with Becky Burley of the University of Florida's women's soccer program. She's the head coach of 25 years, over 500 wins, and I'm excited to talk to Becky a little bit about her journey, her career on this University of Florida sports management, uh, sports business insights from Gator Nation episode. And um, Becky, welcome to the podcast. And let's just start off with, I mean, you out of anyone on this on this podcast series, which you are the last, which we saved the best for last. Yeah. You've got, you've got more experience in Gainesville than it, probably all of them combined. <laughs> Well, I guess that happens when you get old. I don't know. Yeah, I have been here a long time and um, I've enjoyed every minute of it. No, it's great. So look, we could we could name off the accomplishments one after another, but behind all that, there's a journey, there's lessons learned along the way. And I'm sure after each season, you kind of sit back and reflect. And then, you know, a day after you get back and uh, it's, you know, grinding time on on focusing on the next season. But what are the biggest lessons learned for you, even over like the last year or two, um, as I'm sure there's many at different points in your career? Oh my gosh. I feel like in coaching, you probably learn lessons daily. And it's kind of cool because that's one of the things about coaching that makes it so rewarding is that you have an opportunity to get feedback all the time. And that feedback comes in so many different ways. Um, that feedback comes in, I'm going to close this door. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Good thing is I can edit it out whatever I want. I should have done that before we started. My bad. No, no worries. E- easy to edit. So, okay. You want to just hit that question again? Yeah. So look, as you know, we can talk about all the different accomplishments that you want. We can list them off left and right, but um, throughout your career, there's probably been different points in which you've learned different lessons. And even as you look back at the last couple of years, what are some lessons learned that you've maybe learned recently as opposed to when you first started or somewhere in the middle? Well, I think that's the beauty of coaching is you learn lessons like every single day and the feedback you get every single day, whether that's you know the practices you have that week and then you get your feedback on the weekend when you're playing your games, um, whether that's you see somebody making progress towards a particular skill or something that you're trying to teach them. Um, we get feedback all the time, but um, you know, I would say in the last few years, um, well, for sure in this last year with COVID, I mean, the ability to just be flexible and to make sure that you're not too set with any one plan because it's going to change. Um, I think that became a huge skill. And you could see that the people who were able to do that more readily um, certainly dealt with the COVID situation better. Um, and then I would say even in the last you know, three or four years, um, you know, we had a couple of rough years there. And I think it's not something that you would really want someone to go through. But at the same time, I think you learn a lot more about yourself in those years, because you sort of decide whether you're going to be the person you want to be, regardless of the outcome. 
And you also get to see how many people around you are still going to be the people that they want to be. Um, and that's a really, really valuable lesson that sometimes I think you might miss when you're winning. Well, and with coaching, a lot of what's, you know, at least from the outside is you're judged by the wins and the losses. Sometimes you've got quite a few of the wins. You surely, you, you know, you certainly have your losses as well, but when you think about it holistically and, and what you're trying to do, not only on the field, but also off the field and how you're trying to, at the end of the day, not only yourself, but your staff and your players um, try to become better people every day. How do you go about that portion of it as opposed to just worrying about the X's and O's? Well, you know, isn't that the interesting um, conundrum of collegiate sports right now, you know, because it's like it is a business and there's, you know, money on the line when it comes to winning and losing. And that certainly affects everyone, the coaches, the players, everyone. And people are getting hired and fired based on results. Yet at the same time, you know, we're at an educational institution and this isn't pro sports and this is amateur sports and it's not only amateur sports, but it's amateur sports in an educational setting. So how do you balance those two? And I think for me, um, I really like this space. Like I, I would prefer this space any day to a professional environment because I feel like the professional environment, it's very clear what you're paid to do, which is to win. Um, I think in college sports, that's the, how you balance that I think is um, where you have to decide as a coach, you want to land with that. And certainly results are important. Like no one, no one can argue that in any sense. Um, but you also have a lot of victories that happen that are sort of like the, the victories that don't scroll across the ticker on, on sports center, you know, when somebody, you know, lands a job or, um, really grows up over the time that they've spent here, or you just see them, you know, develop as a player and as a person. I mean, those are some of the most rewarding parts of what we do. And to be able to see that on a daily basis in a time period where, for everybody coming to college, you know, we got all these kids coming from all these different places with all these different upbringings, different norms, and you're trying to bring them together to see how this is going to come together as a team like that. That's really exciting um, and very emotionally draining, <laughs> but like, it's also like, I think kind of the fun part of what we do. You mentioned earlier that, you know, it's a business, right? And, and there is, an evolution of that business as well. When you won the national championship in 1998, that business probably looks a lot different than the business it is today, right? No so um, you certainly being one person that can give us perspectives on how that business has changed. Um, what's the one or two things that's changed the most about the business of coaching as a whole over the last, let's call it 20 years? Well, I think if you're talking sports in general, it's hard to ignore the salary issues. And, you know, and I'm not talking about just um, football and basketball. I mean, you know, when I got into coaching initially, uh, my first job, I think I was making $18,000 a year as a head coach at Barry College. And, you know, people's motivation for going into a job like that is different than if you're going into a six-figure job. Um and as those expectations have increased, um, so have the salaries. And so I think, you know, we talk a lot about um, Title IX and the impact that that's had um, on women's athletics. Well, prior to Title IX, those jobs were maybe not great paying jobs, but there were a lot of women who were 
holding those jobs. And then all of a sudden, you know, Title IX happens, jobs become um, much better paying. There's a lot more resources put towards these sports. I'm talking all sports, Olympic sports, every sport. And now the competition for those jobs becomes much greater because they are a much more attractive job at this point. And so I think that when you look at the growth of just even my sport alone, I mean, soccer has grown like enormously. There was just this huge boom of teams that came into existence probably in like the mid to late nineties. Um, and now these are very established jobs um, where, you know, the salaries, the resources, um, the stakes have gone up and, and there's no question that um, that has had an effect. When you think about the recruiting cycle and the recruiting process mm-hmm. being a, a business, right? Like you never, Good point. When, when you got into coaching, you probably never thought that, that, you know, scouting would become a you know, majority part of your job, right? Or, you know, Hey, you could even think about, we're talking about business right now. You could think of yourself as a salesperson, right? In theory. Totally. If right? I'm not a good salesperson, we're not getting good players. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you think about the business of youth sports and what is that driven by? Well, it's driven by the promise of a scholarship and the collegiate model has a lot to do with that. Um, and so that part is really, it's crazy, you know, like um, during COVID, we have been in this extended dead period, which means we cannot go off campus. Recruits cannot come on our campus. So the only way to be able to watch is through video. Well, that's clearly not an ideal platform, um, but in some sports, they've already monetized a way to make schools pay for video um, because somebody has to pay for it because now the clubs are having to provide it since we can't go out and sit on the sidelines. So it's like this huge cycle of um, business decisions that are made at the youth sports level. You know, we see it all the time in, um, you know, kids trying to make decisions about which club to play for. Well, you know, you go to the best club because they get the most exposure, they go to the best tournaments, you have the better chance of getting a college scholarship. And now like a mom and pop club maybe doesn't exist, even if they have a terrific developmental platform, but the exposure is not there. And the exposure is what's going to get somebody a college scholarship. So it's just this huge cycle that starts, you know, I think college, um, enrollment drives it in some ways, clearly like professional aspirations drive it, but it goes all the way down to, you know, we're talking 10, 11, 12 year olds. Well, and we, we actually just had Tom Ferry on talking about kind of the, the sport, you know, development as, as society, right. And how it's becoming harder and harder to, you know, get into certain sports uh, as you're talking about the club sports level, right. The youth sport. Now soccer is one of like you, someone has a ball and you put some cleats on and some shin guards. You would think like, that's how it used to be, you know, you I think, mean, right. I mean, hey, I, was a, I was a baseball player and you needed every other gadget that existed and yeah. you know, hockey similar, right. Golf is expensive, but soccer, you would think, Hey, there's, there's not a whole lot of roadblocks, but to your point, kind of the, the travel, the chase for the scholarship. Oh um, yeah. There's certainly know. barriers to entry in our sport for sure. And I mean, you're right. You hit it on the, the nail on the head, the travel side of it, you know, to go to play for a weekend when you're not even playing in your state, most of the time um, you're staying in a hotel, you may be flying to get there uh, uniforms, meals, like there's just so many costs associated with it. Our soccer in this country is not 
Um, it's, it's a sport that is built for middle class and above in terms of um, the system that we have currently. And how does, I mean, even, you know, we had Mitch Pohl on a little while back, uh, it's the CRO of the NWSL, right? And talking about the evolution of that league and the opportunities it's providing. And when you think about that component right now, you're on the other side of the spectrum of, okay, now a lot more of your players are, are thinking, why could I, I could go pro, right? And, and there's kind of that component. So where's the best opportunity for me to go to school to go pro? And Absolutely. How, how does that affect your recruiting process and, you know, just the landscape in general? Well, I think that um, a lot of people, this is an interesting discussion because men's soccer and women's soccer are on somewhat parallel paths, but also on somewhat different paths, right? Because at the moment, um, until like right now, women's soccer has not been a viable path for very many players to skip college and go pro. There's been an occasional player that has done that, but it's been rare. On the men's side, that's clearly not the way it is. You know, you could go to Europe or you can play in the MLS and you can make significant money that would choose to skip college in order to do that. So college soccer on the men's side has to fight this battle for relevance. Um, where does college soccer fit in the developmental platform? College soccer for women is a little different at this moment where many of the players that are playing on World Cup teams, especially the U.S. World Cup team, um, have gone through the college pathway. So it's a very viable developmental platform that's starting to change. And I think um, we only have to look to men's soccer or other sports to see what those trends are going to be in the future. And where will that leave um, women's collegiate soccer when that happens? And I think that's something that. You know, the NWSL, as well as other leagues around the world, are trying to be somewhat proactive about. But it's an interesting dilemma because the U.S. has this collegiate system, which is basically a farm system for pros um, that is at no cost to these pro clubs with amazing resources. I mean, the University of Florida has way more resources than any NWSL club currently. And so when you take that step into a pro team, you're actually not stepping up in terms of infrastructure, you're stepping down, but that's on its way to change because, you know, you look at like, for example, the addition of um, Angel City FC in LA, their aim is to be the number one professional organization for women in any sport in the world. And the investors that they have, have so many celebrities and big time dollars are getting poured into that club to create a model for what that might look like, probably not just for soccer, but other professional women's sports as well. And I think we are sort of on the cusp of women's sports being a lot more valued for its ability to monetize. It's one of those things where it creates a platform for even someone, you know, on your team to look and go, I could, I could get there. There's an opportunity. <laughs> so, similar if someone's listening to this and they're a high school soccer player and they know that they're not going to make it. They might not even go play in college, but they look at you and they go, well, I could become a woman's head soccer coach. Right. And there's an example out there. Did you ever think that you would get to 25 years later at UF after having been at Barry and, and think, you know, you've probably set an example for many, many coaches across America. No, I mean, it, you know, when I look at my um, beginnings, first of all, I started soccer really late. I lived in rural Massachusetts and there was no soccer. So I was 10 when we moved to Florida 
And that's when I moved across the street from a soccer field. It was all just happenstance at that point. Um, and so even then, you know, like when I, when I decided I wanted to coach, I had to really convince my parents that that was a viable career because they're like, like, this is a hobby, you know, like this is not something you do for a living. Um, and then they, they clearly grew into liking what I did, but I think that is just unbelievable to think, I mean, if I look back at this point to think that, you know, I have been the soccer coach at Florida for, you know, a quarter of a century, which makes me feel really old. Um, that's just like, it's a little bit mind blowing for me. And if that has provided an example for anyone else, um, to potentially take that path, like I would gladly take that because I don't think, I feel like, I feel like I'm a bit of a dinosaur in women's soccer. Like there's not a lot of women older than me that have chosen this career path. And, um, it's going to be exciting for people younger than me to have at least a way to look at it as like, Oh, this is, this is a road that we could take. And this is a possibility. And, um, this is something that could actually happen. What do you try and teach or coach your, whether it be the GAs, the assistant coaches, right? Those that are kind of, uh, in your coaching tree per se, um, what do you try and teach them so that they can go on and get to, you know, positions in, uh, of, you know, success like yourself? You know, there's so many things to coaching that are just like, you sort of have to be in it to understand it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is exciting that there is starting to be a little bit more coach education out there because there really has been very little to none. Um, but I think that, you know, to have longevity in coaching, you really have to create some excellent systems. And that's hard because that's not something I learned going through the system. I didn't know how to do that. But I'm talking about like systems of recruiting, systems of how you're going to maintain your mental health and your physical health because of its being such a demanding job. It's a 24-7 job. Um, systems of how you're going to uh, impart your standards to your team every year because you certainly can't make assumptions that just because one team knows the next team is going to know. I mean, it's a you know, think about this. If corporate America lost the top 25% of their best executives every year and replaced that with junior executives coming in, and that happened every single year, like how different corporate America would look. Well, that's what we do every year. You know, you lose your seniors, your most experienced players, and you gain freshmen who have no idea what they're doing when they get here. And you're starting that whole cycle over again of, you know, defining your standards, managing your standards, modeling your standards as the, the example. And that's, that's, um, that's a big undertaking. It's like, it's like having to train your staff and your players every single year and make sure that you're not like making any assumptions because we know like assumptions lose. That's such a fascinating comparison. I never thought about that, but that's, I mean, that's interesting. And you know, obviously you have more players on one team, one, you know, one sport versus another, right? So that learning curve may be steeper or, or not as steep for some, but, you know, as you mentioned with the evolution of different types of players coming in, and then also, you know, the, the freshmen that you're teaching and educating, how do you teach them to then educate the ones behind them, right? Because in their sophomore That's what you junior, hope. well, you hope, right? Like their sophomore, junior, senior year, they're, they're hearing your same spiel every single time, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they're yeah. going through class four years in a row. 
Well, you hope at least they've had more reps at understanding what it is that you're looking for. Um, you know, I've always kind of thought about that as like a dilemma. Like if I was a tennis coach, like if I only had like nine people, how nice that would be. But then you got to think that, you know, in nine people, one person makes a significant impact, you know, whereas if I have 30 people, one person can sort of, you know, maybe not walk the line quite as well and not affect the team as much. Whereas that one out of nine would be a huge effect. So I think there's pluses and minuses to both for sure. No, no doubt. Um, all right. Well, as we wrap up this episode of it, it's certainly been great to get your perspectives on coaching as a business, your journey, lessons learned, but off the field, how do you, and just as a person, how do you go about trying to get better every day, knowing that coaching is, is similar to, the player side of, of pro sports where it's 24 seven, right? You're like, you have to find that balance of when do you break away uh, from the field and so on. How do you go about bettering yourself off the field? I think that's a really good question. I think it's a question that's often not asked. And so I think it's, I'm glad that you've asked that question. Um, I think to take a step back before I answer that, I think one thing that's been interesting about the evolution of sports is the evolution of the head coach as more of a CEO than an actual on the field coach. So the easiest way for me to illustrate that is if you look at like college football, so many people in the past, um, the head coach was a coordinator, like an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. And now I think you see that much less. Now there's an OC and a DC and the head coach is over both of those because the head coach just can't afford to put all of their energy on one half of the team and then not have the other half have the same influence. Well, it's not really much difference. I think it's one of the hardest things that people never tell you when you're, when you take a head coaching job, especially at a well-resourced institution that you're going to have to manage a staff, not just a team. And for most people, when you've come, like when I was at Barry, it was me and like a, a part-time assistant. And then we had a few people that just worked with our team, like maybe work study or something like that, but it wasn't like you had this massive staff to oversee. So when you take into account that you're managing your 30 players and then you're managing your, whatever it is, 15 staff, um, how do you take a break from that? And how do you recharge yourself? And I think there's this culture in sports of like, oh, you know, I sleep at my desk and I work 24 seven and, you know, my brain's always going. Well, my belief of that is that like, I'm probably not serving my team very well if I'm in a state of, you know, lack of sleep, lack of fueling my body, lack of taking care of myself mentally. I don't think I can be the best coach that I need to be. So for me, um, I've always tried to it's not like work-life balance because there is no such thing in coaching. It's more like, how do I integrate my life together? And I think that part is like, like I like to work out at lunch because it's a break in my day. Um, it's also hot. And so for me, like, that's good because I need my heat tolerance for like, I want to be a fresh at practice and not being like, Oh my God, it's a hundred degrees out here. Um, and then I, I like to, you know, when I get home and, and have dinner, like not, keeping my phone right next to me and looking at messages and trying to take recruiting phone calls. Like I think just putting up some boundaries around the time that you need, you know, and I'll be honest, like I literally during the season, if I get to bed, um, 
you know, after 930, that would be a late night for me because I just can't, I can't do that. Like I wake up really early. I usually get up around 530. So like, if I'm not going to bed at a reasonable hour, it's not going to work for me. And I, I think that I just put guardrails around some of those things to make sure that I feel like I'm in the best possible place I can be to serve the team. Yeah. You've got to understand how you best are you right. And, and how you best function, how you best produce. Um, last thing, because I, I see this poster in the back of your room that says comparison is the thief of joy. And, and I'm sitting here thinking like, well, you know, you've won so many games, but yet you have to compare yourself to other teams around the country. You're constantly probably comparing yourself to other coaches and so on. And the players are comparing themselves against each other. And there's just comparison all the time in our daily lives. How do you go about avoiding the comparison uh, now that there's rankings of every which, you know, man, oh, yeah. um, that's a great question. And I'll be honest with you. The reason I have that poster there is to remind me of that, <laughs> um, because I think that athletics invites comparison. That's what rankings are. That's what competition is. Um, and it's like, I, I like to think of this story as if like, if you get a brand new car and you just love this car but then your neighbor gets a brand new car and theirs is like a little bit nicer than yours. And all of a sudden you don't love your car as much, you know? And so for me, I think it's like looking, looking at like, for example, the facilities arms race is a great example in collegiate athletics, you know, like that's not my concern. Like I have what I have and I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. Same with my current team. Like I can, pine after, you know, the best player in the country that I didn't get on the recruiting trail, or I can put my focus and energy into the players that we do have. And, you know, I really admire coaches who take that approach. And um, one of those for me is uh, PJ Fleck. He's the Minnesota football coach. I mean, he gets tremendous results with, you know, two and three star guys compared to, you know, people that have four and five star guys. And I think it's because of the way that he does things, not so much the what he does, but the way he does things. And I think that looking at it from that standpoint probably keeps you on a, um, a healthier mental space than um, comparing yourself to other people or worrying about what you don't have as opposed to what you do. Great, great words of wisdom and certainly uh, many lessons learned along this, this episode here. Um, a quick rapid fire to wrap up. Ooh, I like this part. Best stadium you've played in. Ooh, I would have to say uh, back in the day, um, Portland, the University of Portland, that's where Megan Rapino played. Matter of fact, she torched us. I mean, it was only 2-0, but I felt like it might have been like 10. Um, they have an amazing educated fan base. So it's not so much the stadium, it's just the environment is like on fire. Do you love to win or hate to lose? I'm going to answer in the same way that um, Kobe Bryant does. Neither. <laughs> like, I don't want to get too high and I don't want to get too low. I haven't had anyone answer that way. That's great. <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, if you could go back to your playing days and play a position that you didn't play, what would you do? Oh, boy. I would have just liked to play better. Um, <laughs> I think I should have been a goalkeeper all along. I wasn't a goalkeeper until my senior year, and it was probably my best position. And I was only a goalkeeper because I got stuck with that because of injuries. But um, my skill set better fit that role. 
<laughs> the glove. I can just imagine that, you know, it's, you got what different Jersey, right? Like you could have, right. you had a different outfit. I mean, you yeah, had gloves. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's like, it's like a new you. Yeah. Um, all right. Last one for you. When you think about, uh, look, the easy answer for the, what's your favorite win question, it can clearly be the national championship. Put that aside. What's the best win after that? Oh boy, you're the second person who's asked me this question recently. And I, I had a really hard time answering it the first time too. Um, I'm gonna say, I think that when you're coaching, you have a lot of metaphorical wins. Like when somebody graduates, that's been a real struggle or when somebody, um, you know, makes this amazing progress. And to me, those are the things that are like the best wins. Spoke, spoken like a true coach. Um, <laughs> Becky, really appreciate your time on, on our episode today. Um, a perfect one to wrap up the series and certainly appreciate your time, insights and perspectives. Best of luck with the seasons going forward. And uh, we know there will be some, some uh, wins in, in the W column uh, and many more to come. Well, thanks. Um, great question. So I appreciate it. I've enjoyed being on. Thanks again for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast. Remember, today's episode was brought to you by Suja Organic. If you go to shop.sujajuice.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll be able to receive 15% off of their packages. Excited to have Suja on board for the month of April. And again, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next episode.